Welcome to Dakota Health, a health and medicine podcast from the University of North Dakota School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Kristen Peterson, along with host Brian Schill. Each episode of Dakota Health explores a specific healthcare topic with UND-based faculty, students, and staff from across North Dakota. Today, we speak with Dr. Eric Johnson, professor in our Department of Family and Community Medicine about medical education, telehealth, and the changing face of diabetes, plus jazz. Well, Dr. Johnson, thank you for joining us today. It's great to see you. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks, Brian. Good to see you too. All right. Thank you very much. Um, so you've been with the School of Medicine and Health Sciences now for, for many years. Uh, maybe just give us a sense of where you're from and how you ended up in North Dakota. Sure. Well, I grew up in Nebraska. I went to the University of Nebraska at Kearney, where I got a uh, Bachelor of Science in Psychology, uh, actually. Uh, from there, I went to work at the VA in Omaha, Nebraska, in a liver research unit. And after that, I went to medical school at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, where I graduated in 1989. And I came to North Dakota to do my family medicine residency in Fargo thinking I would do my three years there and turn around and go home. And uh, that was 33 years ago, and I'm still here. Excellent. And we're glad you are. <laughs> so as, as the um, listener can tell from the, 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 your pitch and your delivery, the tone of your voice, you have a background in radio, so this is not fam- unfamiliar to you, the microphone setup. Um, give us a sense of uh, how you got into radio and how you think then that has impacted or influenced you're teaching medical students because I believe you do some work with telehealth and students. Uh, certainly. Well, uh, actually, part of the time I was in college, I started as a music major, mm-hmm. and uh, that lasted about a semester. Sure. And uh, I went into uh, communications and broadcasting after that for about a year. And uh, many years later, uh, I'm working at Altru in the mid 90s. Somebody remembers that uh, from my original application and asked me if I wanted to do a live on-air radio show, which I did for 25 years. It was a call-in medical show. We should probably talk to your radio background. You were going to be in music as a major up front. Um, What are you listening to these days? Sort of what sort of music, um, maybe it's all types, drew you into that as a major? Did you play instruments and do you play and so on? Yeah, I I grew up in a in a household where music was very important. Mm. My mother was a good musician and a very good singer. Uh, my dad didn't have any talent at all, but uh, he loved classical music, sure. still does. Um, and uh, that's been a bonding thing for he and I uh, over the years. I started playing a little bit of piano when I was about seven and started playing trumpet when I was about 10. And actually I was gonna be a trumpet major uh, in mm. college. Um, but I, I just wasn't dedicated enough. Sure. Uh, but along the way, I, I continued to expand my music horizons. Of course, I got corrupted by rock and roll, like many <laughs> right. of, our genera- of my generation. Uh, but I, I love jazz. I particularly mm-hmm. like Miles Davis. He was mm-hmm. a trumpet player, right. uh, very creative, did a lot of different things. So, I mean, there's, I, like, I like quite a few things. Um, there's not a lot that I don't like at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's merit in a lot of music. I had a stroke about 10 years ago. Music therapy was part of my recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was very important to me uh, as well. Uh, so that, that's kind of how that all get, got, got going. I lost 4,000 records in the flood, oh. uh, vinyl albums, which was mm-hmm. really tough. Mm-hmm. 
so I went to digital then, and I've never really looked back. And now I have a dedicated computer with about seventy thousand pieces of music wow. on it. Nice. So the this is not a fair question, but um, if you had to choose a favorite Miles Davis record, what would it be? Well, Kind of Blue, I think, is his most okay. uh, well-known record. Yep. Um, but I think one that's a little bit of a dark horse that people may not know is, My- is Miles in the Sky. Okay. Uh, that was a very transition record from him for him into more electronic sounds. Yep. And that kicked off that whole five- or six-year period for yeah. him before his first retirement. Yeah. So that, that's one that I think a lot of people wouldn't think of. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. Uh, for what it's worth, I'm a big In a Silent Way guy. Oh, I yeah. I love that record. So. Uh, that was really his uh, immersion mm-hmm. into electronics. Uh, also a very good record. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And so we're having this conversation sort of, I mean, I don't know if COVID's ever really over, but in the wake of the pandemic, essentially, um, and there was a lot of telemedicine that sort of emerged or telehealth um, because of that pandemic. It was already underway. And so my understanding, too, is you help teach medical students and other students um, sort of the basics, best practices of, of telehealth. How does that look and you know, how has that evolved? We started thinking about that uh, about 2015. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Van Eck, Dr. Allen and myself um, applied for an AMA grant to uh, teach uh, telehealth in a group setting, an interprofessional setting in the sim lab. Uh, that actually turned out very well. We did get the grant, and uh, we've kind of expanded it from there. Uh, right now, we have students who can take a telehealth elective, for example, which I helped to develop. And we're actually going to come up with a badging system so that students can accumulate points uh, for other telehealth experiences they might have on other clerkships mm-hmm. that maybe we don't even know about. Uh, I do a lot of telehealth myself. I'm the assistant medical director of the Diabetes Center at Altrue. And uh, actually, right now, about three quarters of my time is spent doing telehealth. Wow. So is that fair to say, again, telehealth, as you suggested, was already underway pre-pandemic. But is it fair to say it's not going away? That's that's the direction that medicine is going for a lot of professions, certainly not all of them. It is. Uh, it was just extraordinary Uh, the increase and expansion of telehealth services. And that's just not a video visit. There's lots of other components to that data exchange, provider exchanges, et cetera. Uh, But, you know, patients like that, providers like that, uh, and they're just going to demand it. And uh, I just don't see this uh, going away or being modified except to make it better. Mm -hmm. Good. Uh, You mentioned you have a background, of course, in diabetes care and working with Ultra Health System in that regard locally. Um, So prevention uh, treatment education. So um, give us your take as a physician, the state of diabetes and diabetes care in, in the U.S., at least in the 21st century. We have more resources, right, and more awareness, but incidence is still increasing. Is that fair to say? And what do you attribute that to? Uh, it is. And it almost exactly, for type 2 diabetes, it almost exactly parallels the increase in obesity in our country. Mm-hmm. Right now, about 40% of adults in, the, in a, this country have obesity. Uh, Another set are overweight, and these are based on BMI values. Mm -hmm. And uh, about 36 million uh, have diabetes, of which 90% of those are type 2. What's really scary, though, is that there's uh, about 96 million people with Mm prediabetes, which is a condition that converts to type 2 diabetes about 10% a year. So, you know, another 10 years, you do the math. It's a little scary, actually, how much really there is going to be. So prevention is one of our big issues right now. The medications we have to treat diabetes are excellent. Mm-hmm. So should you end up with it, we do have a variety of ways in, ad- in addition to lifestyle management 
to help people, especially with technological um, uh, use uh, as well, like insulin pumps and continuous glucose monitors. Uh, so I am very concerned about the growing numbers. Uh, we need to attack the obesity issue. We need to attack the type 2 diabetes issue. Uh, and that uh, really goes back to never getting diabetes in the first place. Right. And so you've sort of answered or anticipated the next question, but you do a lot of work with the American Diabetes Association, ADA. Um, are there some general ADA uh, guidelines? This is not your professional medical opinion necessarily, but just general guidelines for how we can prevent diabetes. What should people do? Right now, this is actually supported very well by uh, scientific data. We know that if people lose in the neighborhood of 5 to 10% of their body weight and have 150 minutes of moderate activity weekly, um, that they are less likely to get prediabetes. And if they have prediabetes, they're less likely to convert to type 2. Uh, so that's very well established. And people can do that uh, on their own. But a lot of people need professional services, like maybe an athletic trainer joining a gym, seeing a dietitian to uh, come up with a lifestyle plan. Uh, these are some of the things that we might do for prevention strategies. Okay. And I apologize if you already mentioned it in one of the previous answers, but help me understand what prediabetes is. Yeah, these people are developing insulin resistance. Okay. And so their blood sugars are abnormal, but not high enough to yet be diagnosed with diabetes. Okay. So that would be a fasting blood sugar, for example, of between 100 and 125. Mm. Less than 100 is normal over that. Clear, clearly falls in the diabetes category. Mm -hmm. um, there's other ways to measure it, like with a test called A1C, um, but that's where this group is at, and there's a lot of those. About one in three adults okay. uh, are estimated to have prediabetes. Wow. And so if I'm not mistaken, a lot of what we're discussing here is type 2 diabetes or adult onset. Is that still a term that's used? Uh, not right? so much anymore okay. because the age curve has been getting so much younger for okay. type 2. Okay. Um, I think the youngest type 2 I've ever personally known was 11. Uh, but we do start to see it more in the 30s, mm -hmm. and it used to be that it was late 40s, early 50s, where that curve really started to bump up. Um, okay. But that's that age has decreased. Okay. And so in any case, um, let's say we're referring to type 2 in particular for prevention. Is Can you, quote, prevent type 1 diabetes? Is that still a diagnosis that's recognized? And what diff how is it different from type 2? Yes, with type 1 diabetes, that's an autoimmune condition okay. where the body makes a mistake and the immune system attacks the beta cells in the pancreas, which make insulin, and systematically destroys them. In people with type 2, they don't have that process. Um, what they have is increasing insulin resistance, usually due to obesity, and their pancreas just can't keep up. Their pancreas is still making insulin, but it just can't stay on top of it, and as a result, blood sugars start to rise. Okay. And sort of on that on that note, then, we're moving from the bedside or the clinical side to the, the lab bench. Um, what are we learning in the laboratory about diabetes lately? What are some of the researchers in this building uh, learning? Do we better understand its pathology and or prevention and a cure at, at that sort of internal level, you know, the biological level, or are we still a ways off? Uh, we're a ways out, okay. uh, I think. Uh, type 2 is pretty well established that if you follow those lifestyle guidelines I mentioned, you can reduce your risk mm -hmm. by about 50%. Uh, there's a lot of uh, activity around medications right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. um, there's a big buzz about drugs called the GLP-1 receptor agonists. I'm not promoting any specific one, but Ozempic mm -hmm. is in the news. It's red mm -hmm. hot because it pr promotes weight loss. Mm -hmm. 
And there's actually a newer drug in that family that combines it with another drug that makes it even more potent. Uh, so we're seeing a lot in the pharmaceutical sector. Mm -hmm. um, and the American Diabetes Association in their guidelines has new emphasis on weight control and weight loss uh, as a point of attack uh, to address things like high cholesterol, high blood sugar, and high blood pressure. Um, I'm involved with uh, ADA on the committee that actually writes the guidelines, and uh, that's going to have a continued emphasis uh, going forward. Okay. And sort of on that note, the technology side, there's a lot happening there too with um, devices and sort of blood sugar testing and all that kind of thing. Um, what, what, what's the state of that sort of industry, the biomedical engineering side of it? It's, it's pretty, sometimes you don't even need to poke yourself anymore, right? To get a blood sugar test. Is uh, right? It would be rare for people who are using certain devices. Okay. Um, right now we have very high quality insulin pumps and continuous glucose monitors. Mm -hmm. Uh, most anybody could benefit with diabetes with a continuous glucose mm. monitor. This is a device that goes on your body. It's not very big. It uh, transmits data to a reader or to your, your phone, and it uh, gives you a new blood sugar every five minutes. It mm. refreshes every five minutes, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, those are very exciting. Their uh, accuracy is in the neighborhood of 10%, which is very good for any device. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they can be used with, with or without an insulin pump. People who uh, need insulin pumps are people who were previously on multiple daily injections of insulin mm. and weren't achieving their target goals. These technologies have advanced significantly in the last five years. Mm -hmm. uh, we're now to the point where they're semi-automated. Uh, the user doesn't have to do much except change everything out every few days or so. Mm. And... Um, you have to tip it off to meals, but it pretty much handles your insulin mm -hmm. delivery for all other situations. Wow. And so this conversation overlaps a bit with the discussion of telemedicine or telehealth, right? Insofar as I imagine the continuous glucose monitor, is that something you could just transmit the data right to your provider? Yes, or... uh, you can. And there's a few different ways to do that. Uh, right now, I told you that of my clinic practice, mm -hmm. most of that is telehealth. Mm -hmm. And that includes a lot of type ones who are using these technologies. And uh, they can actually send me their data directly, which we can put in the electronic health record, uh, or it can go to a cloud service provided by the manufacturer of the device. And of course, those are secure, uh, HIPAA compliant, um, all of those things. Uh, so, and a patient may even have a question between visits. Mm -hmm. You know, they might uh, message me through the electronic health record and say, I don't understand what's happening. I tell them to upload their data. I can look at it, we can have a conversation and uh, move on from there, rather than them waiting three months or four months to tell me what's going yeah. on. Yeah, I don't. I mean, revolutionize is probably too strong of a word or overused, but I imagine that's really changed your practice as a physician, that type of technology. Has it improved outcomes for your patients, made their lives better, hopefully? Yes, and that's supported by the data. Okay. Um, I sure see that here, uh, even usually with a first step of a continuous glucose monitor alone. Uh, patients have so much more awareness of what their mm. blood sugars are. Finger sticks are like a photo. Um, continuous glucose monitors are like a movie. Okay. Um, so they get a lot more data. They see what's happening when they eat this or what happens if they do this activity. And they almost all bring their averages down mm -hmm. and improves their A1Cs, which is a blood marker that we use to as assess uh, complication risks. Wow. So if I'm hearing you right, it's like a movie. This continuous glucose monitor is it's real time. So they, a, a patient can eat something and see what happens almost within minutes. Uh, yes. Wow. I mean, normally when we eat something, it takes about 20 minutes for our blood sugar to start to rise. 
people who don't have diabetes, their pancreas kicks in, insulin happens, mm-hmm. uh, gets into the circulation, controls those carbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, people without diabetes, of course, we have to modify that uh, a variety of different ways. Sure. The technology is very exciting. It's I'm a gadget person, so I really mm-hmm. like it. I have type 1. I've been using devices myself since 2000, uh, since some of the earlier days, because uh, I just wanted to be part of that tech mm-hmm. revolution, mm-hmm. and it, it is a revolution. I think I just want to go back to the prevention topic a little okay. bit. Uh, okay. I want people to know that they're not alone with that. Okay. Uh, the state of North Dakota has a lot of online resources for diabetes prevention, uh, as do many clinics, uh, not just the larger ones like Grand Forks, Minot, Bismarck, and Fargo, uh, but many smaller communities like Rugby. I work mm-hmm. with them. Uh, they have a very talented diabetes educator and dietitian uh, there. So uh, think about what resources resources you might have in your community for Mm -hmm. diabetes prevention. Talk to your own provider about that um, because we can help you. We can get you pointed in the right direction. And as I mentioned earlier, we have tremendous facilities here. Uh, So I would encourage people to uh, investigate that and think about investing in that. There have been a couple, as you know, Dr. Johnson, some high-profile events over the past few years um, involving, say, politicians taking a group of diabetes patients, in one case, to the Canadian border or over the border to purchase insulin or other medications in Canada rather than the U.S., given you know the high, high cost of insulin and so on. What does that say about the economics of diabetes in the 21st century? And have you seen that sort of thing? And what, you know, why are the insulin prices so high? And what, what do you make of what's going on there at the socioeconomic level? These are important questions, I think, for us as a society, uh, particularly since chronic disease like type 2 diabetes is increasing so much. Mm -hmm. And type 1, if we're doing it right, is a fairly expensive treatment disease, up to $16,000 a year, um, which is about four times higher than somebody without diabetes. Um, uh, These events are are grandstanding a little bit, but they they do draw our our attention to what's important, and that's the cost and supply Mm -hmm. side of a chronic disease. Uh, we need to address this. Um, we need to be fair to the pharmaceutical manufacturers because they have research and development budgets as well. But we're going to have to meet someplace. And other countries have done a really good job with this, like Canada, for example. Uh, recently, the administration uh, got a uh, bill through for insulin price caps for um, people on Medicare. Mm. And they're going to trial that for a while, see how that goes. And Hopefully, other providers will pick that up. Uh, third-party payers will pick that up, mm-hmm. um, that, which isn't unusual. Uh, they often follow what Medicare does, uh, so I'm hoping that will be the case. There are some things that patients may not always be aware of, however. Uh, many medications have vouchers uh, that you can use mm-hmm. off of their website to reduce the cost. Now, maybe that's a step we shouldn't have to take. Mm-hmm. Maybe it should just be less expensive. I think there's uh, a lot of things that we need to do in this country, though, with the way we pay for health care, not just for chronic disease. Uh, this is just one thing that's very salient and in the lives of a lot of people. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping we can continue some positive trends with this. Shifting gears just a bit then. Um, how has that direct experience with the condition affected not only your patient care, how you work with patients, but your education of physician assistant or medical students on this condition? I think it's affected me professionally in a lot of different ways. Um, Pulled me in a different direction than I ever would have gone Mm -hmm. before. My intent was to graduate from family medicine residency and work in like urgent care or small town Mm -hmm. uh, emergency rooms. That was really my career path. 
I got type 1 in residency. I was a little bit older mm -hmm. for a type 1. I was 28. Uh, most are around 15. It's kind of the peak year. Um, and at the time, you know, that was horrible because it was very, it, it turned my life upside down. Mm -hmm. But uh, as I went through uh, my training and my practice, I just started attracting a lot of people who had diabetes. Uh, they were excited to see a doctor who had type 1. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a small state, that word got around pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, even today, I think I personally know all the diabetes providers in North Dakota, <laughs> sure. as well as diabetes educators. Um, but uh, I think I, I'm not the smartest doctor who ever lived, but I do have a perspective that many don't have mm -hmm. um, about how difficult this can be, how sometimes it doesn't make sense, how it's always with you on your wedding day, when you get up in the morning, uh, when you go to school, when you go to work, it's always there. And I think that also applies to my teaching uh, for students. Uh, I do some diabetes curriculum for medical students, for PA students, sometimes for NP students. And even the physical therapy program has asked me to do a two-hour block on common diabetes practices. Nice. Uh, and then this is also translated into some very exciting work with the American Diabetes Association. Maybe speak about that work. What is the exciting work? And you are, I assume you're a part of that that you're referring to. I've been very involved locally and regionally for a number of years. Mm -hmm. I've been president of the North Dakota affiliate a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Um, I was very involved with Diabetes Camp here in North Dakota when I was younger uh, for about 13 or 14 years, and that's an ADA-sponsored camp. Um, this new process, well, for the last 10 years, I was actually on a committee that created materials for primary care providers, continuing education for primary care providers, and from that, I got asked to do a step up to the committee that actually writes the guidelines. And these guidelines are important and need to be accurate and scientific because they might affect the care of up to 500 million people a year. Uh, so that's been very exciting for me to be involved with that. I know historically or in the past, you also did work with tobacco cessation in North Dakota, right? And so give me a sense of um, how you got involved in that work and or was it connected to diabetes care? Is there an overlay between diabetes and tobacco that is important to note? It is. There's a couple of answers that we need to address with this. It's mm -hmm. kind of a multi-layered question. Actually, getting involved with tobacco was the reason I got a percent effort at uh, the medical school mm -hmm. in the first place in 2004. Um, that was a 20% job to help uh, bring in, implement, and promote what at that time was called the tobacco quit line. It was a phone service. Uh, now it's ND quits, which is mostly web-based and electronically mm -hmm. based. Uh, so that was a very good project for me to be involved with. I had the time. I could do it. Um, so that's how I got uh, picked for that. It was a little bit random at the time. Sure. And then I spent the better part of a decade uh, working on things like smoke-free law, which was very successful. Uh, Dr. Jim Beal and I did a study on uh, heart attack rates mm -hmm. in Grand Forks County after the implementation of a smoke-free law, uh, which there was a big difference when that when that happened. Um, I'm still involved with a nonprofit called Tobacco Free North Dakota, um, but that's dropped off a little bit for me because diabetes just continues to explode. Mm -hmm. Many might not know that uh, tobacco use is a risk factor for developing okay. type 2 diabetes uh, in addition to things that we think about like high blood pressure and obesity and family history. 
Uh, tobacco usually makes bl blood sugar control worse mm. and more difficult. Mm. And people with diabetes already have an extraordinarily high rate of heart attack and stroke and certain cancers compared to people who don't have diabetes. Um, tobacco just inflames that. It's throwing gas on the fire mm -hmm. uh, for a very difficult situation. Um, I think in the last 10 years, diabetes is a risk factor for amputation. Mm. But I think in the last 10 years, I've only seen amputations in diabetes in those who were smokers. Yeah. Uh, so that seems to be a huge risk factor for that as wow. well. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you for your time, Dr. Johnson. I appreciate it very much. And we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. And um, if you have any music recommendations, please send them my way. <laughs> thank you, Brian. Founded in 1905, the UND School of Medicine and Health Sciences is the only MD-granting institution between Minnesota and Washington State. In addition to its four-year program in medicine, the school houses degree programs in athletic training, medical laboratory science, occupational therapy, physical therapy, physician-assisted studies, and public health. It also hosts master and doctoral programs in biomedical science clinical and translational science, and indigenous health. Since 1973, our historic Indians into Medicine program has produced hundreds of indigenous physicians, therapists, lab scientists, and other health professionals for practice in rural and underserved areas. Learn more at med.und.edu. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the University of North Dakota the UND School of Medicine and Health Sciences, or the North Dakota University System. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this program as medical advice to be used in the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition for yourself or others. Consult your own health providers for any medical issues you may be experiencing.